in the mental health field too often. We've made it seem as if it's just in your head. Just in your head. The landlord can hijack the rent by 20%. That impacts people's mental health. We can have a profit-driven mental health care system if we want our people to be connected and healthy. So hi, everybody. Welcome back to It's Not Just In Your Head podcast by two therapists talking about uh, how capitalism and our economic, political, and social problems impact our internal emotional lives and relationships. I'm Max Golding, LMFT. We have Harriet Fraud, PhD, over here. And uh, before we begin this exciting episode with Robert Henley, going to do a quick shout out to our patrons first winter, Sarah Turner, Rebecca Johns, Justin Harper, Bandila MC Manga, Evan Lee, and Ashley. All done. <laughs> Harriet, who are, who are we talking to today and why and what's going on? Talking to Bob Henley because his brilliant book, which you can all see, although it ends up backwards here, mm-hmm. Stuck Nation, is a brilliant book talking about the through line of America neglecting the actual essential workers that made America from the indigenous Americans onto people called essential workers who aren't properly paid now. And it's a history which both shows the outrageous lack of priorities, but it also has hope for the future. And Bob has worked for CBS, PBS, NPR, and he currently is a reporter for The Chief, an excellent New York, New Jersey labor newspaper. Welcome, Bob Henley. We have questions for you because your book inspired us. Well, thank you so much for having me. Well, it's a delight and an honor. Now, your book shows how Americans have suffered politically and economically from the priorities of profit over people and from the corporatization of media that keeps them from knowing what's going on locally. What is the emotional impact of that kind of corporate takeover of our media waves and our lives and our salaries? I think that it's led to, because it's a generational wound, right? It's a wound that has been with us for so long in the tremendous imbalance of power between capital and labor. And so it's, I would say, limited the aspirations of countless generations of Americans and then also punish those that dared to reach beyond what capital wanted them to achieve. Uh, And yet through all that, there have been social organizations, unions, collectives that have have managed to advance forward some greater vision, some empowering thing at which labor is able to direct its own agency. I also think that your emphasis on labor, on the importance of the people who do the work, because in the two classes of Americans, there are the employer class and the employee class, which is vast and underrepresented and underpaid. And one of the things I wonder about is how did people? How do you think people let this happen to us? Well, I think that if you go to look at, and that's why I started the book at the beginning of the United States, because built into the cornerstones of the current late stage vulture capitalism that we are struggling with and trying to overthrow 
is the makings of this oppressive state with which objectifies humanity. And you have to understand, particularly in this climate, the racist and xenophobic uh, nature of the foundation. So it's important to understand, for instance, that the European cultures that came here, the leadership that was empowered by um, the monarchs of Europe, were acting under a kind of very Tony Soprano kind of uh, a middle-aged construct where the Vatican basically gave them a franchise. And as long as they had the right Jesuit in the front of the ship with a crucifix, that ship that was exploring the new world, and I, this includes Asia, Africa, wherever these uh, hegemonic powers are on patrol for new acquisition, they were, this is called the doctrine of Christian discovery. And uh, this is something where it was actually codified in law. It still exists in American jurisprudence. And the notion being that anything that these discoverers saw, could uh, uh, the crown could lay claim to. And that included individuals. The, this included indigenous people. This included right. the natural flaw and fauna. So if that's the way you start an enterprise, it's only logical that slavery be an extension of it. And that's, that's why, for instance, uh, people get so upset about the reconsideration of Christopher Columbus, because when gold wasn't instantly found in the Caribbean, the one thing he was able to say to his benefactors, well, here we have this, you know, slave labor became a part of the commerce. Well, that's very important that in 1452, as you say in the book, the Pope gave the explorers the right to conquer any land that wasn't Christian. And that's all of Asia, Africa, all of the Americas, North and South. And sort of lay slaughter and steal and rob and enslave the people so that our nation was founded on Christian white supremacy and utter disregard for anything but property. And I have been impressed at the idea you discover a place that had been around since 300 BC. It's kind of, and people, wow. People seem to have discovered it quite a bit earlier than you did. But um, at any rate, that you sh one of the things you do is you show the continuity. Mm -hmm. And I think it would be interesting for people to see how this continues and how it continues today, as well as your wonderful part at the end where you show why people are recognizing that that's a terrible basis on which to have a country. Oh, well, I think it's important to spend a little bit of time, since you've done this nice uh, drawing out in such a concise fashion, or a much shorter book if I had your eloquence. Uh, <laughs> the, um, the issue of slavery looms so large because right. I have done grassroots reporting in the sense that I grew up in New Jersey, and yet you know I had really no idea of how slavery was such a part of my state and that's why it's so important for us to do this work because mm. it's not enough to say, well, we, I, didn't, I didn't own slaves um, it, because we exist in a structure of white skin privilege that's built on these constructs that because we're not aware of it doesn't mean that we don't have to be responsible for it. Yeah. And so I started doing research about New Jersey, which casts itself as a blue state. You know, we think of ourselves as we were on the side of the union. Uh, we were the champions of, you know, uh, equality. And yet the actual history is uh, disturbing. 
because New Jersey was very reliant on, on slavery. And indeed, there was a major contest and during going back to the American Revolution where churches were divided over the issue of slavery. And uh, Jacob Green, a, a famous uh, Presbyterian minister at the time, wrote a, an amazing sermon in 1776 predicting that if America didn't reconcile this hypocrisy of the idea it was claiming independence, while at the same time building that as such a repressive thing as slavery as part of the foundation, that the country would be haunted by this. And those words proved to be prophetic. And so New Jersey was relying on slavery. For instance, there were a number of households that were um, sympathizers with the crown. And so when they confiscated their property after they lost the Revolutionary War, the state of New Jersey sold their slaves. Ooh. So it's important to understand the state itself was mm -hmm. integrated into slavery. And indeed, continued slavery well into, uh, they didn't pass the 13th Amendment until after Lincoln was assassinated and the war was over. I guess they wanted to see which way it was going to go. And moreover, in the form of debt or prison, kept keeping people in jail, which is another example for debts well after other um, states had given up on it. So this is my state. This is where I live. And so I submit to you, there's lost stories like that in New York City, a pantheon of progressive values, supposedly. Well, in reality, their mayor at the time of the Civil War wanted to secede and throw the lot in with the South. Mm. Wow. Yeah. It certainly does show that the very foundations of our culture have been rooted in the oppression of other people mm. and people of color in particular, and that these issues of Black Lives Matter, which are touching all Americans, are have a deep, 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 long roots in America. And I think this is a time which you, you show very well at the end that people now are beginning to catch on and fight back. There's been such a big deal about how important essential workers are while they're being underpaid and risking their lives during COVID. And I think people don't really understand that whole business about the emergency service workers and what that means and all of the this whole foundation and how it permeates our psychology and our upset at the moment. Would you talk about that? Sure. And indeed, what I try to do is show that what uh, late stage vulture capitalism does is disappear people that are inconvenient, that don't mm -hmm. fit into the propaganda. Mm -hmm. And the way that they disappear people is by not making them part, giving them the agency of making their story part of the great American narrative. Mm -hmm. And so I trace, I go back to the Triangle um, Fire, which of course in the beginning part of the 20th century was a case um, resonates with our time, primarily uh, immigrant uh, young women uh, kept in absolutely unsafe conditions uh, where they ended up um, uh, being caught up in a fire because the owner had locked the exits. And so it was a situation where they ended up, many of them having to jump out into the street to their deaths. That became so visible uh, that it, it was impossible to keep that kind of mass death event off the front pages. And indeed, it had come at a time of rising worker consciousness where um, immigrant workers, uh, women, uh, people of color, were recognizing that they had agency and that they needed to come together and that by coming together, they could reclaim their ability to shape their own history. And so I carry that forward 
through the American labor movement, which, by the way, has also had embedded in it some of the same disabling issues of racism and corruption that the dominant capitalist system has. But the through line of people coming together, that fundamental notion, is something we've seen expressed increasingly now where Americans uh, are, uh, unions have been more popular now than ever before. We're seeing that after 9-11, a very important moment where the country uh, was attacked, and yet now we found out that as some close to 3,000 people died the day of the attack, more people have died since of occupational exposures because the Environmental Protection Agency, with an eye towards keeping Wall Street open, downplayed the actual information they had about how toxic the air was in terms of uh, things like asbestos being in the air. And actually, it was labor unions acting together in concert that managed to, one, bring that to light and then develop the World Trade Center health program to at least provide some health care for survivors and for first responders who had come to give aid only be, to be betrayed by their own government. And so this carries forward to this moment today where we had the president at the time, Donald Trump, uh, lie about the nature of, of the pandemic, misrepresent its implications for workers. And actually, and it's recounted in the book, when the American Federation of Government Employees, which represents 700,000 frontline federal civil servants, like the people, the TSA, when they were dropping and dying from this disease, it was the Trump administration that tried to downplay it. And so you see unions rising up again and, def uh, and trying to make uh, public health officials accountable for the occupational impact. And now we're at a point which is very exciting, where for the first time in my life, mm. the balance of power between capital and labor is tipping, I'm happy to say, mm. towards labor. They're calling it the great resignation, mm. and it's because there is na a national existential reconsideration of what work is and mm. what our employer owes us. And this is a unique opportunity for people like yourselves um, to have uh, to be at the table because people are looking for the kind of scholarship that you've committed yourself to bring forward. And which you bring forward in Stuck Nation. What can you talk to our listeners who are interested in emotional life and therapeutic life mm. about the therapeutic effects? of understanding that you're part of something and fighting to make it happen. Because I think the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire of 1911, which followed the huge 1909 strikes right. of immigrant workers, but um, the people who owned Triangle Shirtwaist Fire didn't cooperate with what right. they wanted. Right. Right. And, mm. and now watching George Floyd be basically lynched on television because the courageous young woman black woman actually photographed what she saw has had the same kind of effect as I think the triangle shirtwaist fire. Right. And so has the realization that COVID is affecting some people like Bezos' workers in his warehouses, but not Bezos who's off in outer space now for $500 million, that there's a change and there's a hope. Can you Talk a little bit about the emotional component of this labor resurgent. Well, of course, the uh, it's important also to talk a little bit about um, the deterioration of the national condition that has brought this new radical inflection point, right? Yeah. It's important to know that life expectancy had declined for three years in a row prior to this. Yeah. 
that the body politic in America was 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 ill, had been permitted to become walking wounded long before that with chronic disease all too common, and particularly in um, uh, in poor communities, communities of color. Mm-hmm. And so uh, this resurgence that's come out of this recognition um, has come at a terrible price. And, and also I might add, what's tragic is that if you read the scholarship, public health scholarship of uh, what came out of the great influenza, the Spanish influenza, which by the way, we're about to pass that mile, that tragic milestone in terms of lost lives. I'm sure we're gonna go north at 650,000. What was, what was sad is that we learned these lessons about um, the fact that our fate is, is um, with the, in each other's hands, a collective concept. That, and this was something, remember medicine had gone from leeches uh, to the idea of genetics, where the problem with your disease was in your genes, to an awareness that came out of the Spanish flu, that if a um, laborer was bringing coal in their cart, to the owner of the mine, if the the teamster was sick, he could make the owner sick. So irrespective of class and material circumstance, health is the ultimate collective. Our biology, that's the way it works. We can't insulate ourselves mm-hmm. from the circumstance. I know it sounds like, don't want to get too Dorothy Day on you, but like a New Testament instruction. But truly, our fate and our own prognosis is linked to the brothers and sisters around us, irrespective of their their color. And so we learned those lessons. We had school nurses. This was something that came out of that awareness. Let's forward deploy public health people in the schools. And then starting with Reagan, the era of Reagan, we decided we don't need school nurses or we have circuit school nurses where they get in their car and drive around several schools and we call that coverage. So what's come now is a recognition that to make our bodies well, we have to heal our soul. And it's through this idea of being empowered by being part of the collective solution that we find that redemption and also begin to heal ourselves on every aspect. That is really important because one of the things that's missing from the dialogue about mental health is the importance of connection and the importance of empowerment, not only in meditation, which can be valid and helpful, but also in connection and empowerment with other people to change the things that are oppressing you jointly, that that spiritual uplift and that sense of possibility is downplayed. And it needs, you know, your book, particularly in the last chapters, when you bring it all together, shows that that gives people back the passivity and sadness that was their gift of super exploitation by the corporations and denial of media that captured their reality. Well, that was this has been informed by much of what you've been talking about, because when we look at the assault of the family at the hands of capital, right, I mean, the decimation of it, the the situation where I grew up in an Irish Catholic family of six. And so there was a point in time in the 1970s when the wages declined and went flat, productivity increased. The ability of people to make money for the owners exponentially expanded. And yet all through that period of time and since we've seen until very recently a sliding scale where families had to offer up 
more time outside the home in order to secure a living for the family. And this has had some profound impacts in terms of, and you write a lot about this, uh, and I've heard you uh, on podcasts talk about this, where people are not able to be present in the lives of their children. Now, we've mm-hmm. spoken before. I was fortunate and blessed. My, my, um, my partner and I, I raised, was part of the early development of my children working from home through uh, advanced technology when it came to broadcasting. But what, irrespective of what gender or who does the work, we made it so that if it doesn't pay, then it's not worth doing. Right. And so there's been a whole generation, maybe a few generations of young people who did not have adults present in their lives at key points. And we've monetized all that into, mm-hmm. and so this is an example where you have a society that measures itself only by the gross national product, mm-hmm. means that it is escaping in, in central, in set, essential things that have to do about quality of life which are about paying it forward for a balanced and um, uh, uh, sane society. But because money has become the preeminent um, goal of the entire society, all these other values, familial values, religious values, spiritual values, community values, have been subjugated by the pursuit of money. Yeah, they certainly have. And one of the things that's not realized is how the biggest, loudest voice, unfortunately, ours should be louder, for the family and for motherhood are the people who make it the hardest and almost impossible, the right wing, who tout the importance of the family while taking away every single support, the support for children, money for daycare, child tax refunds, time off, family vacation time, maternity and paternity leaves. They're against it all. Right. It's sort of like country music, which is usually kind of right-wing set to music that says, you know, mother, she did it all, but uh, never anything about empower mother. How about compensating mom? How about a little childcare? And I think that we who want to reclaim America from just the land of dollars to a land of kindness and productivity and fellowship and sisterhood have got to understand that there's a spiritual awakening in reaching out to other people, which people are having in the vast union drives that we have. And because we don't even hear about unions much, Um, A guy named Mike Elk, who is retired, decided to devote himself to creating a website for everybody who wants to get on it, to tell them all about all the strikes we don't hear about it. And anybody who wants to hear about it, it's paydayreport.com, paydayreport.com. But behind every strike report is people's sense of hope, people's sense that they will get more out of it than the 10 cents an hour because they'll get a sense of connection, a sense of hope, and a sense of agency, which you don't have if you just let money talk the loudest and drown out your voice. Well, and one of the things I'm happy to report is that we are seeing, and it doesn't get much um, coverage, in New York State, uh, which has had seen socialists elected in 
numbers that go back, I guess, mm -hmm. decades. We haven't seen that kind of thing. The last time we had that many socialists, the legislature threw them out. <laughs> and that's another story for another day. Mm -hmm. uh, what's fascinating is that the agenda uh, in the last budgetary session, the legislature, the state of New York, although with a reactionary governor who was weakened by his own corruption, was able to raise taxes on the wealthy by $4 billion. And then in an un unprecedented move, created an unemployment fund for undocumented immigrants. And yes. I think it was $2 billion. Mm. And then on top of that, passed something called the HERO Act, which requires all private employers to permit the creation of worker safety committees, whether they're unionized or not, to define and articulate dangers that exist because of occupational exposures to airborne diseases like COVID. And then actually we'll find um, the uh, the company's $10,000 a day for failure to abide by uh, the public health requirements to meet the challenge of the pandemic. Now, I mean, it's not utopia, but that's a dramatic turn of events. And I will tell you how this happened. And this is another piece of this that we need to get out was a coalition of faith-based groups on the left, um, the socialist movement and grassroots community groups and labor together and immigrant rights groups. Now, this is a coalition that is, I permit, uh, I submit to you, will be as effective as the, this is the new New Deal coalition because it is saying to people, it is going to repeat, and if you're undocumented and you're working, we are going to advocate for you and we are going to get you at the place of the table because you've been serving our table. I think it's reasonable to expect that we will be able to get this Congress at some point to grant citizenship status to essential workers who worked through this pandemic because there's precedent for it. Indeed, my paternal grandmother was a nurse from Nova Scotia who responded to the uh, Spanish flu epidemic and for her trouble was permitted to become a citizen. Similarly, mm. we've had uh, uh, men who were during the First World War, who went to war on behalf of the United States, who then for their sacrifice and commitment were granted citizenship. This is something that we can do. I would, I would like you to repeat the members of that coalition again for our listeners, because it's very important, because also, interestingly enough, it's that coalition in Argentina that won abortion rights, even though the Catholic Church did an all-out effort along with the evangelical churches, to, to stop abortion rights. So would you go over the- Sure, so the moving, the, moving, the moving parts would be the faith-based community. And so that is, um, you know, uh, you think for instance, Reverend Barber and his tradition yes. of the Poor People's mm -hmm. Campaign. Mm -hmm. You think of people aligned like Dorothy Day, Catholics on the left, like the Berrigans. And then even within the Protestant community, the Jewish community, um, and, and, and the Muslim faith. In New York City, this is a real thing. I mean, and we saw it manifest when Trump was acting out on immigrants and doing these draconian moves that changed day to day, a spontaneous uh, actions at the airport where people of all faiths wanted to be present and witness on behalf of these people that were being victimized by this repression. So there's that. Then there's also, um, the, the young, um, I would say, they're the Occupy Wall Street, the socialist mm -hmm. movement, DSA, uh, certainly um, uh, AOCs, uh, people that are following, working through that political channel, and then the labor movement itself. Not all the labor movement, certainly, I'd have to say, 
the SEIU, Service Employees International Union, 1199, CWA, because they have made, and this has been going on for a while now, when they wanted to organize people doing essential work, they found out that these people were undocumented. And rather than reflecting back to the racist, xenophobic thing of their predecessors, where for a long time, and still in some parts of America today, in the construction trades, there was blood spilled because people of color wanted a chance to get access to the work, but because of the corruption and racism within the labor movement in some quarters, they weren't granted to it. That is changing. And so that's a very powerful coalition. And, and we see it um, really playing out in terms of um, even, even basic things that people took for granted uh, that, well, we can't make that change. That's going to be possible. It's happening. And like I say, this idea of having a fund for undocumented workers is a recognition that they're a critical part of the economy. And, and interestingly enough, in upstate Republican communities, there wasn't pushback about this because the reality is, and I have to tell you that I've been a reporter for a long time. When I first started reporting, New York City had over 2,000 homicides a year, 2,000. Now, if it approaches 400, we're up in arms. Do you know what the cause of why that, that homicide rate declined? The reason why was because of undocumented immigrants. And I say it to you based on granted reporting, precinct by precinct, because in places that capitalism had resulted in the abandonment of it, wholesale blocks, immigrants came and rebuilt these places because the three things that have working in their life is faith, family, and work. That's their foundation. That's how they roll. And when they have a chance to pursue those things, they give us forward progress. And people... Look, people in New York, even Los Deliveros is a union of delivery people who are from Africa, who are from South America, who have different languages, but who have won the right to do things that they, of course, should have been done. Like when they deliver food for a restaurant, they're now allowed to go to the bathroom at that restaurant. They also get a dollar fifty more than they used to an hour. I mean, that, but what you could see when you saw, when you see demonstrations of Los Dolivros, you see the spirit that people who were humiliated are now feeling like important people and they have the solidarity and connection that is an emotional factor in empowering people and changing people. And to go back to that other example, another thing that reduced the homicide rate since 1973 was once abortion was allowed, you had fewer utterly desperate, hated children growing up to be hateful and murderous adults. And that's been so wherever abortion rights have been delivered. And one of the things that happened in Argentina was the same coalition. The indigenous movement joined with the feminist movement, joined with the labor movement, and turned over in the most Catholic country the opposition against abortion rights. So these coalitions of labor, of indigenous people, of everyone who is shunted down and whose labor isn't valued from women and indigenous workers and African-Americans and Hispanics, and also now the climate movement of people who want to join together so we have a world in which to live and work. That coming together, I think, is the spiritual salvation 
for America. Well, and I, I would, there's going to be one challenge we certainly have, it has been, a lot has been written about it, is the millions of women that have been alienated from the workforce uh, coming out of the, uh, in the pandemic, because they, of course, were uh, pushed into overdrive with having to do homeschooling while maintaining their economic output for the family. And that is going to be an organizational challenge because, and I was talking with labor leaders, this is a problem because they are remote workers if they do get back to work. And so we're gonna to have to come up with some new, um, uh, some new enterprises because the nature of the pandemic and our economy has, has made it harder to organize people. I do think that through social media that we can begin to engage at some level, but it, that, is, that is gonna be a challenge. And I will tell you though, that we right now, there's a million more jobs than people looking for jobs. I just heard a report, the National Guard is now driving school buses in Massachusetts because there is not sufficient uh, supply of bus drivers. So this is an inflection point like none other in recent history where labor can begin to define its terms and conditions and in a way put uh, capital back into the proper perspective where it's always belonged. That's true. Also, there, excuse me, I read a study in which there is no scarcity for decent jobs with advance. Right. One of the things about bus drivers is it's part-time and terribly paid that you have to drive twice a day in between. You don't get paid. Well, in a pandemic, there's also additional occupational risk. There's requirement Absolutely. to take vaccines. I mean, there's a whole, uh, there's a lot of baggage to being a bus driver that wasn't present before. The That's pandemic. right. And also children are carriers, even though they right. can't be vaccinated. So they're also endangering themselves. So when they talk about the labor shortage, which is real, it is a shortage because if you don't pay people decently, they won't work anymore because they have... Because why should I die for this money? Um, Stuck Nation is a totally valuable book for every person interested in mental health. Just call easily yeah. Stuck Nation. You can yeah. get it on if you get do stuff. Stuck Nation, Robert Henley on the internet. They'll tell you where to get it or go to Democracy at Work. Mm -hmm. Because this is relevant. This is the hope for our planet. This is the hope for each other. This is the hope for the mass of workers who do the work to keep us alive. Mm. And so we thank you enormously, Robert Henley. Thanks this for having me. This is a great me. contribution. Yeah, thank you so much. And do you have, just to close, do you have any sort of, you know, I don't know, websites or, or social media sure. things to sort of just plug for any Actually, listeners? Yes, I, I am at Stuck Nation because we surely are. Mm -hmm. And I also use that as a way to get leads uh, mm. about nascent organizing efforts. Mm. Uh, and then the chief leader, of course, is really at this point, we're doing national labor reporting mm. and we're also interested in um, all kinds of worker struggles. So please avail that as a way to direct message me mm. and then we can begin to have a conversation. Okay. Thank you so awesome. much. Thank you, Robert. And thank our Patreon listeners and everyone who listens. And please share this podcast with your friends. Yeah. Oh, and if anyone wants to contact us, just email it's not just in your head at gmail.com. If you want to become a patron of our show, it's patreon.com slash it's not just in your head.
By the way, listeners, if you have enjoyed anything you've heard Harriet say in this program, you will definitely enjoy Capitalism Hits Home, which is a solo program that Harriet does through Democracy at Work, which is a worker-owned cooperative that produces other great programs such as Economic Update with Richard Wolff and the Anti-Capitalist Chronicles with David Harvey. I can't recommend enough that everyone also listen to Capitalism Hits Home if you enjoy It's Not Just in Your Head. Capitalism Hits Home is a sort of broader over overhead view. It explores the way that capitalism shapes our personal lives, our psyches, our relationships, our families, and it looks particularly at the sea change in American personal life as all Americans, but the top 10 or 20 percent of Americans, have our security and our chance for a future become as precarious as it always was for minorities and families headed by women. It's not just in your head and capitalism hits home are definitely complimentary. And if listeners would like to check out Capitalism Hits Home, Harriet, where should they go to find it? Either on YouTube or Democracy at Work or on my own website, harrietfraud.com.